Welcome to Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker. Today's stories, personal injury and the metaverse. What am I even talking about? Well, we'll find out. A Chicago criminal defense attorney takes on a civil case for his client and hits for $25 million against the Chicago Police Department. And the Dwayne Maxwell verdict now in jeopardy after a juror admits he may not have been truthful on a jury questionnaire. All of that and more, here's what you need to know. Up first, the Metaverse has its first personal injury lawyer. New Jersey firm Grungo Colarulo opened what it says is the first personal injury firm in the Metaverse. Now, the location of the virtual office is in Decentraland, parcel 36, 150, whatever that means. Uh, what is Decentraland? I'm going to do a terrible job explaining it, but I'll give it a shot. And let's start with a piece from Wired called, quote, what is the metaverse exactly? Wired describes it like this, quote, to a certain extent, talking about what the metaverse means is a bit like having a discussion about what the internet means in the 1970s. The building blocks of a new form of communication were in the process of being built, but no one really knew what the reality would look like. So while it was true at the time in the 70s that the internet was coming, not every idea about what it would look like is true, unquote. The Wired piece says that the primary difference between the metaverse and our current iteration of the internet is how we interact in it. So it's the user interface and the metaverse will be more immersive, whether that's in the form of virtual reality, augmented reality, or open space sandboxes like a video game map. The way that I'm visualizing it is if you ever played a video game, the metaverse is basically going to be like that, except instead of shooting zombies or solving puzzles, you'll be doing grocery shopping or attending conferences, in my imagination at least. Anyways, one of these maps, or as developers like to call them sandboxes, is called Decentraland. And in Decentraland sits a lone personal injury office of Grungo Colarulo. From founding partner Richard Grungo, Quote, many lawyers and law firms may be tempted to label it a gimmick and pay little attention to it, but those same lawyers and law firms likely looked at social media the same way in the 2000s before it revolutionized the way clients interact with lawyers and law firms. We believe that the metaverse has the same game-changing potential and are putting our virtual flag in the ground today for that very reason, unquote. Now get this, the firm says uh, Grungo's 11-year-old daughter built the metaverse office. And the office will offer educational information about injuries and employment discrimination. Potential clients will be referred to non-metaverse resources, according to Forbes. And by the way, this is just another aside because I've been following this metaverse feed pretty closely. There was another piece in Forbes on January 5th where it was reported that the cheapest plots of, quote, virtual land in the metaverse are selling for 13000 And that's for the cheapest plots. So if you plan on building a law firm there anytime soon... Now is probably the time to invest. Sticking with legal tech for a minute, this one from longtime tech blogger Bob Ambroli from Law Sites, where he recaps his top legal trends from 2021. There are some obvious ones like remote work. The article mentions remote courtrooms, another obvious one. The piece also argues that hybrid work, that is part-time in-office, part-time out-of-office, is here to stay. And with that, I tend to agree. I'll highlight a few ones that jumped out at me. Uh, one is regulatory overhaul in certain states regarding the 
prohibition on non-attorney ownership of law firms, specifically places like Arizona. Minnesota also approved a pilot project that would allow paraprofessionals to do certain legal services. And in Illinois, there is a movement towards allowing non-attorney investment in certain legal services as well. California and Oregon and Colorado are looking into allowing unlicensed legal work in certain areas. Overall, it seems like the regulatory moat around legal services is shrinking. Next up, like most other sectors in the U.S. economy, the legal tech sectors have consolidated quite a bit in 2020 through 2021, and I'll just give you a list here of some of the ones mentioned in the article. Uh, My case was sold to a private equity firm. ASG Legal Tech acquired an online payment platform called Headnote. Rocket Matter was acquired by a private equity firm, which also acquired TimeSolve, which is a cloud-based legal billing and timekeeping software and Imagine Time, a practice management and payments company. Amicus Next was acquired by a private equity firm, and then four months later, combined with Zola Suite, a legal practice software provider, Clio acquired a court calendaring company called Calendar Rules. And I could go on. There's a long list in the article. The point is that the legal tech industry followed the merger trends common elsewhere in the U.S. economy, which we covered in the last episode. Overall, the legal tech industry seems to have accelerated over the past two years as the needs of firms and clients have drastically evolved through the pandemic. Changing gears here, an interview with attorney Ron Safer in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin from a few days ago on a recent verdict here in Chicago. Eddie Bolden, the plaintiff and the criminal client of attorney Ron Safer sued for former Chicago police detectives, arguing that he was framed in the 1994 killings of Derek Frazier and Irving Clayton during a drug deal gone wrong. Now, Safer represented Bolden through the criminal appellate process, ultimately securing his release and obtaining a certificate of insurance in 2016 in the criminal case, arguing that he was framed for the crime. Safer and his colleagues typically handle only criminal cases, but in this case made an exception based on their relationship with their client and decided to take on the related civil case. Speaking to the Law Bulletin, quote, we've never done this before. My philosophy has always been that there are other people who would do the civil cases and that my time was better spent trying to get the next innocent person out of jail. But Eddie asked me if we would make an exception to that policy, and because of our relationship with him, we decided to pursue his civil claim. Asked about the challenges of trying this case in Chicago, quote, people also generally think police officers don't frame innocent people. It's a challenge to convince a jury that police didn't do their job. They landed upon this young black man and they were going to make him guilty regardless of the evidence. Convincing a jury that these sworn police officers wouldn't care if an innocent person spent the rest of their life behind bars and convincing them that this is a sad yet undeniable truth to this account was a challenge, unquote. Ultimately, there were 28 findings for the plaintiff at trial, totaling $25.2 million on the civil case. Now, it is fairly rare to see people handling both criminal and civil matters, especially such high-profile ones like this, and especially on their first time around. Pretty cool that Safer was able to hit a grand slam on his first at-bat. Good for him and good for his client.
Our last story is an update on the Ghislaine Maxwell story that we covered last week. And this is something that I read and my jaw absolutely dropped as a trial lawyer. Get this. In a Reuters report from January 5th, which I think first appeared in The Independent, a British newspaper, a juror on the Ghislaine Maxwell trial identified only by his first and middle names as Scotty David was interviewed and said that initially some jurors had problems believing the testimony of some of the accusers in the Maxwell case. Scotty apparently was a victim of sexual assault himself, and when topics such as memory suppression came up during jury deliberations, Scotty relayed his personal experiences to the other jurors, which is in itself not remarkable. As I remember one judge instructing the jury, you don't check your common sense and experience at the door. The problem, and I'm sure that the trial lawyers listening to this have already sniffed it out, is that as part of the jury questionnaire during Voidir, one of the questions asked was whether you, as a jury member, or someone you knew was a victim of a crime. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's generally what the questionnaire said. And Scotty David told the Independent that he, quote, flew through the written questionnaire, implying he did not check off that he was a victim of a crime or had prior experience with sexual assault. He told the Independent that Maxwell's attorneys did not follow up with him during Voidir. Reportedly, quote, the jury room went dead silent when he shared his story, unquote. And David believes that this helped the jury understand that it's possible that these women were telling the truth. Reportedly, the jurors had questions about why the victims didn't come forward earlier, and David told the jurors that he didn't come forward until high school. He said, quote, you might forget some things, but the core of traumatic memory stays with you, unquote. Now, that's all well and true, but again, he did not disclose on the questionnaire that he was the victim of a crime. Worse still, the New York Times reports that a second juror describes having been sexually abused as a child and said that this discussion appeared to shape the jury's deliberations as well. Joe Patrick of Above the Law points out that lengthy questionnaires like this can backfire in what he calls an attempt to over-engineer a jury, which I do tend to agree with, but still you can guess how the defense responded to this news. The reason that the jurors omitting their prior abuse from the questionnaire is so important is because had they said they had a history of abuse, they would almost certainly have been removed from the jury by the defense lawyers via preemptory challenge or even a challenge for cause. Now, in a letter to U.S. District Judge Allison Nathan, who presided over the trial, Maxwell's lawyers said there were, quote, uncontrovertible grounds for Maxwell to get a new trial. According to a Reuters report from this morning, the omission from the questionnaire does raise questions about potential perjury on behalf of these jurors, and recent reports indicate that Scotty David is actually lawyered up accordingly. We can expect that this will be part of whatever appeal Maxwell's lawyers were already working on. I'll try to keep up on the stories it develops because it is not going away anytime soon. Thanks, everyone. That's the show. We are finally up on Apple Podcasts. So, yes, you can find us everywhere, and I can say that now. Thank you to everyone who's been listening so far. One thing that you can do that would be a big help for us here is to review the show on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you can. It'll help us with the search algorithm. Stay up to date on our new episodes, and I, I think we may be dropping some off schedule, some longer form ones, things like that down the road. 
uh, go ahead and subscribe and turn notifications on. That way you'll know as soon as we post. We'll be coming out soon with our confidential submission email and signal accounts for tips and you can always drop us a line at. And we're kind of slowly building out the infrastructure of this project here in between our day jobs. So bear with us, but we appreciate all the listeners and support so far. I'll see you next week.